the appendix, which no one can diagnose tonight, in 36 hours, is obvious. It's a medical school type diagnosis. You don't need kindergarten to know that a resident working a 36-hour shift is in no condition to make any kind of judgment call. Forget about life and death. All right, it's summertime, and the living is easy. I would have sung that, as you remember, uh, but you you really don't want to hear my singing. It's the August issue, 2016, of Risk Management Monthly. I'm Greg Henry, and I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and with me is... Rick Bucata in uh, Sierra Madre, California, on a gorgeous day, going into the, uh, not a cloud in the sky. Of course, there's no rain. We haven't had rain for months, but, uh, uh, and I'm sure you've had rain just about every day up there, yes? <laughs> no, we haven't had it every day. But by the way, Rick, is there anything left to burn up in California? Every night oh, yeah. we watch forest fires, we watch half the valley being burned. What the hell's left there anymore? No, there, there's plenty yet. Yeah, there's plenty yet to burn. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, actually, the last fires that uh, occurred were relatively close to Ricky's house, and he had a picture. You know, they have these planes that drop this red fire retardant yes. out of them, and he has a picture of them dropping this fire retardant literally probably no more than 500 yards from his house. <laughs> it almost went on top of his house. In any case, uh, and it actually scared the bears, which he has up there, but in any any case, no, we have no more fires around here. We're okay for the time being. We are waiting for the locusts. Good, good. Yes, I'm going to say that's that's one of the only plagues not to have hit you guys. To start out today, I am going to acknowledge that we've received some some letters and some emails, and uh, Dr. Essler up there in Canada. We're glad you've uh, contributed with your two cents worth on uh, pain medicine. Reasonable men can reasonably disagree, but I think that pretty much Rick and I are from the, eh, you're not going to cause an addiction, take care of people, give them them a shot of uh, morphine, it's not going to cause any problem. And I know the rest of the world has gone super cautious. You know, there's got to be some happy medium here where we can come together because the bottom line is people come to emergency departments for two reasons, deformity or pain, uh, and sometimes both. Occasionally, there's a little bleeding. But when you think about it, look at your chief complaints. Pain is still pretty high on the list, and you've got to have some philosophic way of handling this. Wouldn't you agree, Rick? Yeah, and actually, it's a shame that David is in Canada because I don't think he gets emergency physicians monthly in which I spilled my guts on my view of this. <laughs> and I think the, the most recent issuer and the issue that's coming up and the long and short of it is is that we cannot let this pendulum go too far. Nobody in emergency medicine for crying out loud gives out oxycontin. We're give you know we're a few percanants for crying out loud. Give me a break. I do still believe that there is oligoanalgesia and this is just going to make it worse. And I think that all of these guidelines we know what to do. We know what to do. So let's move on. And speaking of moving on, let's go to our topic of today, Greg. Alrighty. We've got a paper to review, and sometimes it's more relevant than others to exactly what this program covers. This today, it's right on the money. And this is a an emergency medicine closed claim study, which comes to us out of the doctor's company. 
Now, for those of you who are not aware, the doctor's company is based in California, I believe, and is the single largest physician-owned medical malpractice insurance carrier in the United States. They got a lot of docs in this, and they've been kind enough in this study to look at closed claims between 2007 and 2013. They had a total of 332 emergency medicine sort of only claims, and they're, they're happy to give us the results. Now, I think what we always have to remember is closed claims always depend on when the actual incident happened, uh, when they finish it up. It doesn't always correspond to the years as we've mentioned them, but I think that this is kind of as close as you get. They've asked some very interesting questions and and uh, as to what's causing it. Now, for the last 40 years, it's interesting that if you had to pick out a disease entity that gets sued on 30, 35% of our money loss, it was chest pain. There's actually a little shift in that. Because of technology, because of things which were said about stroke, uh, this the doctor's company now feels that acute cerebral vascular accidents i.e. strokes, is coming up and maybe surpassing chest pain as the principal reason we get sued. What do you think about that, Rick? Hey, listen, I think you're jumping the gun, Chief, because one of the things I did want to do was to go through this, like the four most common allegations. They had this panel of experts that went through these records to make the judgments with regards to what the problems were. And they also came up with recommendations. So they don't actually tell you who these experts were. But, you know, I take the word for it that they probably did a good job because they're very interested in (laughs) having their clients not be sued. They're very motivated. (laughs) That's right. It actually is their money. And so they have have something that indicates to us that there's a reason that they're involved with this. And – As always, if you look at the four most common allegations, the first one is misdiagnosis. You betcha. Yeah. Yeah. No, there is such a thing as getting it wrong. Now, as we've said many times on this program, getting the exact diagnosis is not necessarily the standard of care in emergency medicine because we see things at a certain moment in time. The appendix, which no one can diagnose tonight in 36 hours is obvious. It's a medical school type diagnosis. Not thinking of this as a potential problem and sharing that question with the patients is really, really the issue involved. Yeah, but wait a minute here, Chief. These are closed claims. So this is the real McCoy. And yes, this is a microcosm of what we deal with. And I do think that this is by far the top of the leaderboard here, and I think it's one of the reasons, you know, obviously it's self-serving, but, you know, every 10 years, doctors have to recertify in emergency medicine, and what that really means is that every 10 years, doctors have to brush up. They have to devote some serious time to uh, studying, and why is that? I think it's not so much about the treatment. You can look up the treatment in the books, But if you don't know the right diagnosis, you're looking up the wrong treatment. And so by far, the physicians have to be aware of the differential diagnosis. So they're talking about 
failure to diagnose. You betcha. Delayed diagnosis. Yeah, we got the diagnosis, but it was three days down the road and the uh, appendix has been ruptured for two days. Or the wrong diagnosis, which is kind of in this triad. And so those are the things that they're focusing on. Rick, they use the term differential diagnosis, which is one I want to be cautious with. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, that's exactly right. You come up with something called a reasonable working hypothesis of set of those things you're going after. If you look up in, in Sanford's text, you'll find you'll find that there are a thousand different diseases in which the white blood count is elevated. I guess that would be the differential. But for the patient sitting in front of you who you've taken a history on, there may be four or five things that you're working on, but they point out that not sort of elucidating what those four or five things is, that's the mistake. Not only to yourself, but to the patient involved, that we have to kind of work our way through this. And so I think if you want reasonably use the term differential diagnosis, what they're really talking about is reasonable working hypotheses related to that patient at that moment in time. This is going to come up repeatedly in their recommendations. And we've talked about this in the past. In fact, last month with Mark Calvert, we specifically talked about the necessity or lack thereof to list a differential diagnosis. I'd like to hold that in abeyance because and talk about it kind of at the end. You want to go down through this list of the, uh, of the uh, patient assessment issues that they're talking about specifically? Well, the other one they say is failure to order diagnostic tests. Now, you and I are the most anti-test doctors on the planet, except for Jerry Hoffman, who's not really even on the same planet when it comes to this. But I think the point is well taken. Order the correct test. I've again been asked to defend a case in which the test ordered for a back pain was a CT and not an MRI. This patient clearly had compression or at least irritation at that moment of the spinal cord. So it's not just ordering a test, it's ordering the correct test. And I think in emergency medicine, we ought to have some sense as to what tests are good, what aren't, when they're they're useful, all that sort of thing. You know, I I can't agree more. Failure to order the the right test is really important, and I and you you've hit the nail on the head. We have kind of viewed ordering an MRI as requiring a uh, okay from the Pope to do yeah, this. You know, an act of God. You would exactly. not certainly order an MRI on your own kind of thing. You would need to get fifteen consultants in there to agree, and I think that that's fundamentally wrong. If you are interested in somebody's spinal cord. Don't bother with that CT. Don't bother. You can get five CTs who will not equal one MR. You can't take three second graders and make a sixth grader out of it. That's uh, one of my favorites. Uh, but in any case, yes, order the... Order the uh, now, the other thing, honestly, it comes up over and over again, and people say, well, why shouldn't I order tests? You know, it's kind of like the hospital makes money. I get uh, the patients expected. I, I I feel more certain about the diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera. I can tell you that when we're getting paid for outcomes, not process, 
You will be left behind if you have that mentality. They can also say, well, you know, I can get sued. I don't need, they're expecting it. This is skewed to the people who have been sued. But in general, I, I got to say, you know, please be cautious with the ex- expenditures. There's a balance that we're looking for here. I think the next point they make is excellent, and that is you need to address abnormal findings. And And when I say that, I mean, if you took the time to order a test and now you ignore it, why did you order the test? It's if they've got somebody who's come back with an EKG, which is nonspecific STT wave changes. That's not the same as normal. And you have to make some, you have to make some comment about what that means in relationship to your patient. If we were talking to our friend, Amo Matu about this, I think that he would agree. Now, this is I'm going out on the ledge here to say that a the finding of a nonspecific EKG changes is not normal. You have either a normal EKG or an abnormal EKG. And if you have nonspecific changes, you have an abnormal EKG. Is it bad? Well, maybe, maybe not. It's probably not, but it's not normal. But at least at least take the time to go back and look at the old ones and say, it looks exactly like the last 12 they've had done, something like that. But, but they, they consider the sort of ignoring of an abnormal lab finding. And I don't care what that finding is, whether it's the, the sodium, the potassium, whatever it is. You've got to bring it into some context here so that we understand you've at least looked at the test result and have decided how it fits into your particular patient. How about another abnormal finding, uh, abnormal vital signs? I think that that is kind of like the uh, tip of the iceberg here. You got some unexplained tachycardia. You've got a uh, low-grade fever. You've got those kinds of things which have been ignored. The blood pressure is too low. The pulse pressure is too high. You've got a big systolic and a very low diastolic. Those kinds of things are, are, they're called vital signs. They're called life signs. And you've got to acknowledge them when they're abnormal. And sure, a person has a 102 fever, you're going to need to have some kind of tachycardia, but you're not going to have a 160 or 150 for crying out loud. So that's kind of a part of this as well. They also talk about ignoring clinically available information. And that's what you just said about prior EKGs. If you are, if they're available, and you choose not to look at it because you're too lazy or something like that, or you're too busy, well, then there may be some consequences that you have to deal with. Yep. Uh, And I think that the habit we all get into, which we can explore it now or later, is the fact that we try and make the information fit our preconceived (laughs) diagnosis. Square block into a round hole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're going to shave that 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 square peg and sand it. We're going to get it into that round hole if it kills us. Why? Because it's how we initially viewed that patient. And and I'm not saying this to be rude to anyone. Every one of us does that. We prematurely close the diagnostic gap. Well, that's going to come up a little bit later, and I think it's very important. It relates to intuition. What else do they have? There are other issues, including... Well, it's failure to obtain a consult. Yeah, right, right. Well, you, you know what? 
we have to put this in perspective as well. We don't know everything about urology, but I think most of us know when we need to run the case by a urologist. Do they know lots of little facts we don't know? Yep. Does it actually make a difference? Not in most cases. But when we do know that we need a urologist, you can't take a a no for an answer. No, I'm not coming in. You know what? If I've done this a long time, if I honestly, and I rarely call a urologist, but if I call one and say, you know, this kid's testicle isn't right, I think he has an obligation to come in (laughs) and they ought to do that. You know, the other thing is, is that this list that they have here is not particularly consistent because that one of the things here, they talk about discharging patients too soon. Well, that's got nothing as far as I'm concerned to do with making the wrong diagnosis. This is, uh, and we can talk about that later. The next thing they get into the, is that the conditions that were most often misdiagnosed. And you're right, Greg, they have, there's been a flip-flop. Right. At the top of this list, now they're list, not listing percentages here. And I don't know whether this list is kind of done in the order of most common, but acute cerebrovascular accidents now is the first thing that they said. This is generally about failure to diagnose, but more importantly, failure to treat, which we'll come up with in a bit. You know, now it didn't matter in the past if you didn't diagnose a stroke because you could nothing could be done about it. Now there's supposedly treatment that you're supposed to give, whether we agree about the treatment or not. That is a new trap because things have changed now. And so you got to make the diagnosis, got to make it in a timely manner, lost opportunity, all that other stuff. Yeah, I think the TPA cases, they've come up. They're bothering the insurance companies. They're bothering everybody else, even if some of them don't make any sense. But I'll tell you the new ones that are going to come up is people who are getting in there and sucking out those clots. We went for about... 15 years with no good literature. In fact, 2013 uh, had embarrassing papers on uh, on removal of the clot in, in, in either the carotid or the middle cerebral. 2014, there are at least three studies, maybe a fourth, which basically say yeah, this this may work. You know, we've got a we've got a new uh, a new gate to jump over here, Rick. Because when we talked about TPA, we were talking about differences between ten percent, eleven percent versus six percent bleed. Some of these new the Mister Clean trial basically said there was forty percent difference in these people, and it wasn't bad science this time, Rick. Well. If I'm at a hospital and I don't have that capability, then I can do what I can do. And, you know, there may be issues of, of transfer. There is going to be ultimately the regionalization of super regionalization of stroke care so that people now are going to be going to these centers, which are not going to be every Tom, Dick and Harry hospital for sure, where they have the ability to do this mechanical event in your head to fix your clot. But by the way, that that's the only thing that seems logical to me. For me to get a give a drug and say in 90 days there's a difference between the two groups. I like the idea that if it's blocking the plumbing and you suck it out and the next day they're better, it seems to me that like that's logic that fits in my head. 
I understand that logic, but this is the problem of having cleaned out a lot of drains in my life, I guess. Well, so that now that is at the top of the list. MI is still there, despite the fact that we over-admit every potential chest pain that you could think of. Yeah, and by the way, there is at some point in time in a country where the principal killer is myocardial disease, there there will be an absolute point above zero that we can't make every diagnosis. We can't. In fact, all all these studies say, well, in the next 30 days, only one in a thousand had a coronary event. You know what? I don't know how much how much finer we can articulate that number because there there, there is a point where w- there is no zero in science. It doesn't happen. Hey, let me just let me just go through this list. There there are things here that we've never talked about, like uh, spinal epidural abscess, pulmonary embolism, necrotizing fasciitis. They actually have meningitis on the list. I'm not quite sure. I, I, that makes me question the list, to tell you the truth, because meningitis is rare, rare disease now. Although I will, I will tell you this, as we're recording, Michigan yesterday, they went on the television set at 9.30 at night, the health department. They did have a woman working at a children's uh, center, 239 children, and she is diagnosed with meningococcal meningitis. Oh, my God, you should have seen uh, the health departments around this area going crazy. Every one of those people is contacted, brought in. Are they going to get something that prophylactically treats the meningitis? It's interesting to see when they have a true bacterial meningitis that can do you damage, how quickly we can get, <laughs> we can get mobilized. Torsten the testes, we never talked about that. Subarachnoid hemorrhage, what, what's that? One of the things that we never talk about, though, is septicemia. I guess maybe we should look at, you know, spend a little time on that. Lung cancer, what the heck? They got lung cancer on the list. Fractures, okay, well, I'll give you that. And appendicitis. Again, I don't know whether these are in the orders of frequency, but that's the list that they, they were concerned about. Greg, why don't you talk about improper management or treatment? That's, that's number two here. Yeah, well, they say not only do we not diagnose them correctly, but when we do it, it's a failure to stabilize a patient in whatever manner is necessary in the time that is laid out. Now, nothing ever happens as fast as we'd like it to be. But, for example, they mention as an example, failure to stabilize the neck in a, in a patient with uh, severe trauma resulting in paraplegia. Now, I think the number of those has to be extremely small, Rick. But when they do happen, they're huge payouts. And like any insurance company, they're interested in what the down-the-road payout here. And there's no question neurodamage is the largest group of payouts in, with regard to emergency medicine. Nothing is big. You know, it's interesting because there, if you look at the literature most recently, there is a move away from putting every single soul in a backboard. And they're, they're backing off on this idea of everybody has to have their neck immobilized. You know, you see these people walking around at the scene and the next thing you know, they're all strapped down to a backboard kind of thing. 
I, I think what they're talking about here is a little more severe patience, Rick, because you and I are part of that movement to not x-ray everybody. I mean, if, if you look at whether you're using the Canadian data or the Nexus data, there's probably 60, 70 percent of people we can clear clinically. I think what they're saying is for the people in which you can't clear them clinically, do it right or don't do it at all. Because somebody who's severely intoxicated, been in trauma, you're not sure about, you know what, uh, maybe you ought to do that right <laughs> until they get a film. We've reviewed a, a bunch of papers recently on this topic. The vast, vast, vast majority of people who have neurologic deficits as a result of a spinal injury will manifest those at the scene. Right. It's not something like, well, they were fine and walking around, and by the time you get there, they're, they're quadriplegic. That is not the case, and that it, this has to be viewed as the most unusual finding. Uh, and so we don't want to overdo this. I think we, in, the, in the past we have overdone it. So I, my sense is, is that, you know, you don't want to go nuts about this one example. No, no, I, d I don't think we should because it is rare. We lived through an era when we said, oh, maybe the, the swelling and that comes on gradually and that's what does it. Most neurosurgeons now believe that the primary damage to the spinal cord was done at the moment exactly. of the fracture. It happened at that moment in time, and no matter, you know, all the king's horses and all the king's men aren't going to put Humpty's uh, neck back together. It ain't going to happen. I guess one of the things it means is, you know, the pre-hospital people need to be, do a pretty decent job to assess whether there's any evidence of any kind of neurologic problem, like whether you have a stinger, you got numbness, tingling, those kinds of things, but it's going to be there in the street. The other thing they talk about is, as an example, wounds that get infected that have some foreign body that you left in there and that you've not kind of looked for that foreign body either initially or when they came when they come back and they're infected. And I think that it's 101 emergency medicine risk management to be very assiduous about documenting how aggressively you have looked for foreign bodies and you've washed out the wound, et cetera, et cetera, so that it makes it clear that you have done your best. It doesn't mean that you're going to find everyone, but you've done your best. And and, and perhaps in a glass-caused wound, you know, you may choose to get it an x-ray. It's uh, not the standard of care necessarily, but, you know, they're, they don't want you to miss foreign bodies. I don't blame them. Yep. Rick, why don't you talk about the... Uh improper performance of a treatment. Yeah, they're talking about some examples here. Intubation, an improper intubation. You got, you're got down to the right main some bronchus, you're in the... That's why the anesthesiologists don't get into trouble anymore. They have basically required them to do all of these kinds of routine processes and checklists to make sure they're not making mistakes. And, and a lot of that has kind of moved over into emergency medicine where end-tidal CO2 whether by machine or these color changers, that is routine now. It's like you would not do an intubation without kind of doing that because it's it's become now, I don't know if I want to say the standard of care, but it's it's certainly expected that in the majority of cases, you will verify that you're in the right hole. They talk about suturing. Now, I'm not so sure about 
you know, improper performance of suturing. I don't, you know, I don't know where that kind of comes in, but they have it there. I've never seen one of those cases. No, I don't either. No, it's not. It's not. It's not big time. Why it showed up in their study, I'm not sure. And and then then they talk about the insertion of IVs or central lines for medication. You know, I think in general, we all went through the phase where early on in our careers we did a lot of procedures, which we gradually sort of dropped back on. As we be as we became more experienced, the number of people who need central lines is relatively small. So if you're going to put that central line in, which does carry with it in the best of hands, some danger, you better be able to justify why you did it. And I've heard that in court where a lawyer saying, couldn't you have put that medication through a different line? And I think that we need to think about that a little bit. Not that it isn't important in a small group of patients, but to think that everybody has to be centrally cannulated is probably not correct. Well, there's also the issue of ultrasound-guided central lines. Is that now the uh, expectation? I'm not going to use the word standard of care by, by any means, but we do know without doubt that using ultrasound makes it safer when you're doing a central line. There's controversial literature on that, Rick. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, there was a recent one that said usual and standard. Well, that, that was in the use of the ultrasound just in starting peripheral IVs. And what they said was it probably didn't make much difference. Now, when you're talking about the central system, that may be a much larger question. You know, we had a case at our hospital where I don't know what, what the evolution of this thing was, but the allegation was that a blood gas drawn in the uh, antecubital area resulted in some at least semi-permanent neuropathy going distal from that because they basically buggered up a nerve in the process, I guess. And it's my, my view of it is um, <laughs> it's rare that we need a blood gas, rare. And Maybe the evolution of the blood gases has spread around the country in terms of not doing them nearly as frequently as we used to. There is an abstract in, I think, the August issue of the EMA that talks about the equivalency of venous bicarb and the equivalency of venous pH, and they also talk to uh, arterial, and the fact that we now have O2 saturations, and the fact is that we really don't need an arterial blood gas in the vast majority of cases when we used to get them. What about failure to order medication, Greg? That They only said that that represented 3% of the cases, for crying out loud, and it's probably, there's only probably two things that they're talking about here. What you already t- initiated, the thrombolytics. Let me just say there are a couple of things which I have seen rear their heads again, One of those is if you believe the patient has an infectious disease diagnosis, don't assume that they're going to get their antibiotic in a half hour after getting to the floor. It's not going to happen. And so I have seen some delay. And now that everybody's into sepsis protocols, most of which I think are overblown, there are only two things that matter. Water. How much? A lot of it. Keep giving it. 
and early antibiotics, and that I can agree with. So I think the criticism here, and, and they mentioned this, is uh, the infection if not, it probably is treated better early than late. And that's a standard lawyer question. Doctor, do you think in general infectious disease is better treated early or late? I always remember a lady I had who was refusing to have a spinal tap. I was almost certain she had meningococcus. As a matter of fact, she had a couple little blood spots on her arm. And and I said, can I at least start the antibiotic now? And of course, I started it. And uh, as she's going downhill, infectious disease was so mad at me that I started an antibiotic before I had the uh, spinal fluid. I said, look, you do what you got to do here. <laughs> what? So you're mad at me because I killed all the bugs and treated the disease? Come on. Don't do not do crazy stuff. So I, I think that with antibiotics, if you think about it, you know what, give it before they go to the floor. The other area where this is happening, and, and I don't know why there's so much more of it now than there was, is in necrotizing fasciitis. I've seen people go from looking normal to damn near dead in four hours. And I'd sure as hell rather defend you if you've started the antibiotics for this than if you haven't. Yeah, we have to get off the fact that we're approaching this in a scientific manner where you would get the specimens and make the diagnosis definitively and check the number of white cells in the CSF. We can make the diagnosis of the cause of your meningitis if you have it later. We can't begin treatment later. I mean, that's not going to work. So the idea here is now we have all of these antigen tests to determine what is the bug that is causing your problem. We don't have to culture it to know what's causing it. So, right, you got to have the men mental status that says, I'm going to culture this person up as quickly as I can, but I'm going to give the antibiotics if I think this person's got a significant infection. Now, there will be people, and there is some literature that says, well, you know, although it makes sense, it's hard to show that, like, in pneumonia, it really matters. And, you know, this idea that, that we had in the past, that you had initiate antibiotics within a certain period of time, kind of backfired a little bit because everybody was giving people antibiotics who had, had a little cough so they could meet these quality, quote-unquote, measures. But in any case, yeah, nobody's going to disagree that early antibiotics are, is not a reasonable thing to do. And, yeah, the fibrinolytic thing is there, and okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best. And um, and I guess the fibrinolytic thing basically says i got to make the diagnosis and because you don't want to give fibrinolytics to people who don't have the, diag the the disease because little little dangerous. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't help certain disease entities. Is absolutely correct. They also get into something. They get they now go into a thing which they call specific factors contributing to patient injury. And a lot of these honestly are a little redundant. So I don't think we need to spend a lot of time in them. They say clinicians sometimes fail to establish a differential. There we go again. Uh, we're going to get that to one last crack. They're going to give us on that a little bit later. They basically say, be really careful about going on intuition. Uh, intuition is sometimes really, really helpful, but over-reliance on intuition can certainly get you into trouble. That's for sure. 
they point out that a narrow diagnostic focus can influence your decision-making, and you need to have, in most cases, start out with a broader one and then narrow down as you go. But if you come into the game with a narrow one, then there's the opportunity to make diagnostic errors. These are all about unusual cases that got sued because somebody's kind of screwed up here and money changed hands. Lastly, they're talking about inadequate patient assessment also influenced the fourth most common allegation, failure to order medication, including people. Well, they already covered that for crying out loud. Yeah. By the way, inadequate patient assessment is something worth talking about. You've never seen a doctor do badly on the stand till they asked him questions like, did you get up and did you walk that patient? Did you do this? Did you do that in a back pain patient? Did you take the pants off? Did you take the shoes and socks off? These sorts of things. That never goes well in court because they'll ask them, give me the elements of your examination for this patient or that patient. And when they, when they family denies that certain things ever happened, it can be a difficult case. Got it. Got it. Got it. Mo- moving on. Let's take on some, and I like these things. We have to include patient factors. And they thought 21% of the time there were, there were characteristics and problems of the patient themselves that made care either, either difficult or delayed. One of those was obesity. Now, this has three factors. Number one, doctors themselves don't like fat pig patients. They just don't. And, and <laughs> hey, speak for it, yourself. Yeah, yeah, I know, Rick. But, you know, most people don't. And everything you do, getting them up, walking them, rolling them over, everything becomes harder. You have to put more work, get more people, get more help. And I think those sorts of things do affect what goes on. The other thing is in most hospitals, we have a limitation, and that's gone up recently, a limitation on the size of a patient we can put in a CT or an MRI machine. We actually had one lady who had to be sent, this is a few years back before all the machines got bigger, but they had to send her to uh, Michigan State University where they have a an MRI machine they could put cows into, and they sent her there for the procedure. They have a veterinary school there. In fact, Michigan State is really big on veterinary medicine because it is such a rural Midwestern kind of place where agriculture and veterinary is a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a huge deal. And it's perfectly good for patients. Now, I I will admit, in the last five years, everyone's gone to open MRIs, that sort of thing, just to stay in competition with the freestanding MRI machines down the street, you know, because some patients were freaking out, getting claustrophobic, all that sort of stuff. But patient, there are patient factors, not just, not just physically, but also behaviorally. We have patients who do not will not adhere to a treatment program or follow-up appointments. And I think noncompliance breeds unhappiness and an unwillingness to go the extra mile in the physician who's involved in the case. As soon as they come in and they say, well, where have you been? They've been to two other doctors. They haven't filled the antibiotic. They haven't done this. They haven't done that. I think that 
is a, a mental hurdle which you as a doctor have to get over. You know, there's also people who are dirty, you know, people who haven't, who live on the streets, who haven't showered in a long time, who are, uh, have mental illness and uh, thrown on top of it. So this is just a, a person that is just such a challenge to you because they, they have physical and emotional and mental kinds of things, all of which are unattractive to you. Yep, absolutely. Communication, they talk about communication as being third among the, uh, the factors that they're uh, concerned about here. Issues relating failure to communicate. What we have here is failure to communicate. What movie was Wasn't that a line from Cool Hand Luke, I think? Uh, yes, yeah. it was. What we have here is failure to communicate. Uh, that's exactly right. Thank you, doctor. And failure to re- review medical records and poor professional rapport in terms of communicating with uh, the patient in, in a professional way to let them know that you appear to care about them part of the job it's not an optional kind of thing and if the patient gets pissed off at you and then on top of it you make a mistake then you got troubles it's fine you could be a jerk doctor as long as you don't make any mistakes yeah right (laughs) yeah yeah but if you make a mistake then you're called the defendant doctor yeah this by the way this is not a this is not just with the patients i think our biggest communication problems are occasionally with our consultants. You realize when you talk to somebody on the phone, you're calling them. You get to paint the picture anywhere, any way you want. The worst doctor is the one who calls up and say, well, I don't know, could be this, might be that. If you want them to come in, tell them a come-in story. If you're going to send the patient home anyway, I like to open up with saying, John, you don't have to come in for this one, but I want you to see him at 8 o'clock in the morning. They love you. They'll, they'll build a statue to you if they don't have to come in. But if you think they need to come in, I don't want you communicating equivocation to that person. If they need a surgeon, bring them in. If you got bones out the skin, bring them in. Hey, listen, the other thing they talk about with regard to communication, in addition to the uh, consultants getting them in, they want you to make it clear that you've told the consultants about the physical, the history, and any lab or imaging so that you've painted the picture so that they cannot say, they never told me. You don't want to get in a position that the consultants can say, well, I didn't know they were that sick. You know, he never told me about that or this. You don't want that. Or if they say, if he'd only told me this, I'd have been, I'd have come right in. That's the last situation. Yeah, I'd have come in on my motorcycle. By the way, the, these don't have to be long notes, but that note better, better include the time. You, You spoke to Dr. Smith you told him uh, the you thought the patient had appendicitis or a fractured hip or whatever the question is, and this is what we're going to do. But it should not be equivocal. I, I always love those guys who say, well, I thought they were going to see them upstairs or this or that. If you think the patient has to be seen that night, get that straight on the phone because I'm involved in a case right now which has to do with what was told, 
when they thought they had to come in, what level of care they needed upstairs. It's ugly because what you've got is two physicians with different insurance companies fighting this question out. Never pretty. The other thing about communications is the handoffs. You know, everybody's got to be up their butt or now or burr up their butt or something up their butt regarding formalizing handoffs and having check sheets about what should be included in a handoff. Now, you know, honest to goodness, I didn't honestly in my career view that handoffs were a major issue, but apparently, apparently they are. Apparently there's some problems and patients getting harmed by inadequate handoffs about what's going on and who's taking responsibility for the this or that. And, and you know, you could certainly see it. And there are a lot of handoffs. You go from the ER to the inpatient service, from the inpatient service to the ICU, from the ICU back to the back to the wards. All of those places represent handoffs, or or handoffs from surgery and the post-operative situation to to the floors. Those kinds of things are also handoffs. Or we're admitting somebody, and we're calling the nurse supervisor for a, a bed, and that's it. And the nurses in the department are talking to the nurses on the floor. Those are also considered handoffs of some significance. Yeah, you might as well assume that if you're going to take over a case, whenever I was coming on, I wanted to go see that patient. It wasn't just a chart handoff. God, no. I, I, I want to see what they look like. And and as I think we've talked about on, on this program, sometimes when you're summarizing a case for the next doctor, everything dawns on you. The other thing is, while you're with that doctor, you might put the hand on the belly again, and now it's rock hard. People change while they're in the departments, and I think that uh, handoff is as dangerous a moment as there is because the first, the second doc thinks the first doc did everything right and assumes that everything's okay and uh, it's all going to be not a problem. I think people change and I've learned a lot in trying to explain to the next doctor what I went through, what my thoughts were, and I'm happy to have the patient hear that discussion because sometimes, you know, the patients will add things. It's okay. The other uh, source of uh, problems with communication relates to f- follow-up instructions and potential language barriers with regards to those instructions, or even language barriers in the department. We know that there's all kinds of laws that say that you have to have translators in, uh, available, no matter whether it's Swahili or Yiddish, that you have to have uh, translators who are qualified to, to do it. You just can't get the housekeeper to do it. And I think it's surprising, I think, the lack of suits regarding inadequate translation because it seems like it's just a, such an easy trap to get into. Yeah, but I'll tell you, they went crazy on this. Do I occasionally use their 14-year-old teenage daughter to to translate? Yeah, because number one, they they are they have an interest number 2 they speak the dialect you know occasionally when you get these people who are supposedly professional translators they'll tell you right to your face i only speak part of what they speak or it's not the same in the family they speak the same thing now i know it's not politically correct to do this 
But I'll tell you what, in a lot of communities, where are you going to get a Serbo-Croatian translator? I think you're perfectly right, except don't get it, don't get in trouble over it. Yes. Because if you do, unless it's some extraordinary language, you're going to they're going to say, "Well, don't you have this translation service that could have helped out here?" Uh, because there have been some nasty examples that precipitated laws with regards to these translation-related issues. They also talk about communication with, with the family, that that certainly is an issue. And I think you've got to be careful because we're getting into this era of uh, HIPAA. And you got to get you can't be talking to the family without the patient's consent about it. So you need to say, Mr. So-and-so, is it all right if I speak to your wife, your, whoever, your son, whoever's here about what's going on? You just can't assume that that is the case. And I think that it's just a reasonable thing to do. I think it's uh, appropriate behavior. I think it's courtesy, common courtesy, to ask a patient if I can discuss what's going on with your family members. By the way, if, if true communication is you and I exchanging ideas so we understand it, let me tell you the principal instrument of non-communication available in America today it's the discharge package from the emergency department. Currently, at my local hospital, we looked at this. It's 17 pages long. It has crap on there that's unbelievable. I think we need to have an information page. Here's what you need to know in half a page in big letters. And then the rest of it's sort of information. But to think that the patient should dig through 14 pages of crap, I don't see that as communicating anything. And uh, I remember the old, Rick, you grew up in this era that I did, that on the last page of the five-part sheet, which had carbon copies in it, was um, was something you tore off. It was about a third of a page. And you got to write down things like, You'll return tomorrow at 8 o'clock or sooner if worse in any way. That's all they needed to know. <laughs> it got nuts. We used the same aftercare instruction for 30 years, 30 years. It was one page. And uh, in that 30 years, to my knowledge, we never got into any issues related to that document. And yeah, it's right. It's basically come back if there's any new or worsening symptoms immediately. That was it. Now, yeah, there there was some other advice, but it didn't try to make a junior neurosurgeon out of you with regards to the assessment of head trauma from the parent's point of view. Johnny checked the pupils and all this other crap about, and has he vomited more than more than twice, and all of these other non-scientific, <laughs> which had no scientific basis anyway. Exactly. exactly. But we we did that for reasons I, uh, I I can't believe. By the way, they also say that one of the contributing factors is uh, workflow and workload. We've talked about this on other programs that it's actually rare that you're ever sued for having inadequate staff, inadequate people on call, all these sorts of things. But if you want to avoid lawsuits, if you claim to have certain capabilities, they ought to be available when you need them. And 
I, I could never figure this out. The first year I, I, I was working, the nursing staff had as many nurses on on Monday morning at 8 a.m. as they did on Saturday in the afternoon at the 4 o'clock shift. That was crazy. That's like having all your waiters on, same number of waiters on at a great restaurant at 8 o'clock in the morning and not at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock at night, you know, when most people are coming to dinner. And the reason we did it was the vice president of nursing thought that uh, nurses like to work day shifts during the week. So we were going to have the same staffing day or night, which had nothing to do with our patient volumes. We had charts that showed when people would show up. How come uh, How come we didn't have more nurses at that time? We put on more doctors at that time. It was crazy. Yeah, but, you know, in California, we have a four-to-one ratio, not of patients, but of beds. So we have as many nurses at 3 in the morning as we do at 3 in the afternoon. We could have more at 3 in the afternoon, but this is a nutty, nutty, nutty rule where the state regulators said, here's your nursing ratio. And uh, it's been a cause of substantial angst when we get out of ratio in terms of, well, that, does that mean we not don't see any more patients because we're out of ratio kind of thing? The other thing that they talk about with regards to this workflow thing is, what if you have this bump in terms of chaotic in the ER related to we got a lot of sicker patients than normally kind of thing? And if they combined in terms of staffing and intensity, well, then you might be in a situation where you are in over your head. And what what contingency plans are there when that occurs? And I think that it's expected that you have some and that you pull the switch and say, we need some help. And, and This is a great myth of American medicine is that we have surge capacity. We don't have much surge capacity. And if, if you had to see 25 or 30% more patients in most emergency departments tonight in America, it'd be a disaster. Yes, that, that's true. However, I should tell you that if I was the CEO of your hospital and you were a contract emergency physician group, I would expect that you have a physician on call to not only take care of somebody when the, the ER doctor is sick or something like that, but when there are some surge-related issues. We had, and our doctors hated it, physician on call all of the time. We were a single-covered hospital. We were only one doctor. We ultimately, toward the end there, we got uh, PAs and NPs, but uh, we had a physician on call. And I think that it was a reasonable thing to do. We would have many, many times when this physician would be called. And the other thing is some physicians called more often than others for help. But, you know, that's just the way it goes. I mean, some people are much more efficient, get people through. Here's the myth of that, Rick, to call in a doctor without also calling in a nurse, a tech, x-ray people, lab people. I mean, I was in plenty of those contract situations where they said, well, we want a doctor coming in if the wait is more than two hours. And my always my response is, we'll put that in the contract. If you put in, here's the following people that doctor needs to support them. No, I, because, I agree. Yeah, for the same doctors, two doctors now giving the same number of nurses orders. 
I, I don't see that as useful. No, no, it's very inefficient. Well, we did have one place that was smart enough to to say uh, they had two nurses in delivery, and they only delivered about six kids a day or four kids a day at the most. If we were backed up, if if they didn't each have a patient up in delivery, they would send one of those nurses down to help out, to take the vital signs, to do various things. That seems to me to be logical. Well, we had a code brown where the hospital would... That was for impactions, wasn't it, Rick? No, this is, our code brown basically was we were, we were suffocating down there and we needed some help. And the nurse supervisor would go around and free up people and bring them down. Although clearly they were not necessarily ER experienced people, so they were not the most efficient. But, you know, that was the best we could do. I think that we have beaten this to death with regards to this workflow issue. I would love, I would love, I would love if I was a plaintiff's attorney to go after somebody, some a hospital because of inadequate staffing as the result resulting in some patient's injury. I think that I think that, that is that the majority of this stuff here, Greg? Well, that's that's the majority of this study. And the bias of the study is obviously this is an insurance company who has lost who loses money, who pays the bills. And so there is just a little bit of bias in this. But what I also understand is these are the people who have some honesty. Why? Because they actually get to see the cases. And so I, I'm always, I always learn something at the insurance meetings because these are the people who are stuck at the bottom of the, of the barrel having to write the checks, and they can uh, they can teach you a lot about how the process really goes on. So I'm, I'm always happy to see this stuff. It's, it, it reminds us of where the problems really are medically, legally. Yeah, they come up with some tips at the end, but I, honestly, I think we've covered most of those in um, our discussion of this, uh, of this study. So thank you, Doctors' Company. We have about 15 minutes left. Greg, I wanted to do a case. You Actually, you have some cases, don't you? Yeah, I got cases, but you go ahead and let's start on these two cases. Go ahead, read it. You want to do the first one? Why don't you do, why don't you do this 22-year-old college student, okay? All right, Rick, this is a good case. A 22-year-old college student with a significant prior psychiatric history. Eh, that's already a warning sign. Because whenever they say to you, here's a psych patient, beware, because you'll, you'll get waylaid into psych problems. Presents the emergency department, and it was noted that he had taken an overdose of dextromethorphan. The patient was agitated and yelling answers to the various questions. Suspecting the patient had taken some other drugs, a poison setter was consulted. The patient died four hours after discharge from the emergency department. An attorney concluded that the patient died from an autopsy, rather, excuse me, slip of the tongue, died from the serotonin syndrome due to the combining of dextromethorphan and selegion, uh, a selective irreversible MAO inhibitor. The physician's defense included the perception that the patient had committed suicide. Oh, my God, what a case. Rick, what do you think? 
Well, this has a couple of lessons here. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot of the details. You forgot to give us the very last line. The jury decided in favor of the physician. Well, I wasn't going to do that till we were done, but I understand, Rick. You know, it's like, holy smokes. I mean, this patient clearly is, you know, I don't, I don't know how long they held the person in the emergency department. I don't know how long they uh, observed them. I don't know, you know, the trend in their vital signs and the mentation of this patient. We do know that the serotonin syndrome is a dangerous kind of thing, and people have died from it. It can come on quickly, and we need to kind of know a little bit about about these drugs that these people take because it is not an idiosyncratic reaction. It is not an allergic reaction. It is a dependable reaction that occurs when certain drugs are given either in large doses or simultaneously with ones that also result in too much serotonin. So it's kind of like it's it's predictable is basically what they, they say. By the way, dextromethorphan is a drug which is looking for a disease. Oh, yeah, actually, that's the truth. It actually is. It is cheap. It is available. The cough syrups all have it in it, and almost nobody needs any of them, and there's been very little proof that it actually, until you get the other autonomic nervous system effects, it doesn't even really suppress cough. So we'd be better off without any of those drugs as opposed to kids doing uh, robo-tripping on this stuff. Yeah, I wasn't really aware of the uh, of the extent of the abuse of dexamethorphan. And you are right. We did an abstract many, many, many years ago that looked at the efficacy of this stuff. In usual recommended doses, it has no effect whatsoever on cough. But the it, but it's in all of this over the counter medications that uh, it's it's involved in. You know, thirty, forty, fifty different different drugs, uh, different medications, house brands, the uh, the stuff, but they also point out that Robitussin is off, the liquid is often uh, got guanefacin in it, which is an expectorant, and if you drink enough of this stuff, it's going that's going to make you sick, so that the bottom line is that kids generally have gotten smart now and are going to the pills, the coracetin high-potency pills that don't have this in it, and that's called these are coracetin cough and cold capsules, which are called triple C's. And I, you know, what do I know about this stuff? Well, we kind of got to learn because dextromethorphan is thought to be the major culprit in this this case. Now, whether the whether it didn't look good when they go home and die, and obviously something transpired that was not good, somebody had a great enough defense so that the doctor won, but it seems that we need to be really be aware of this stuff, number one, uh, that this can occur. And if, if this is a part of the thing about diagnosis. If you don't na- know about the serotonin syndrome, you'll never make the diagnosis of the serotonin syndrome. And it's potentially a really dangerous thing. It doesn't have to be really dangerous. It could be mild, but you know, it has also been associated with, with deaths. And I think that in general, emergency docs should be discouraging families from using uh, cough syrup. The the British did a great study in which they found that honey, warm water, and a little lemon or something like that did just as well. In fact, it performed 
uh, in a superior manner to the same combination with Dextrome and Forfam in it. So uh, keep kids away from it. It's a good idea. What do you think of the fact that they called a poison control center, Rick? Well, you know, I think that generally causing a po- calling these centers is, if you don't know exactly what's going on, it's kind of viewed as a nice thing to do in your defense, uh, I think, to put down. We called them. We consulted them. Uh, we got the advice of so the so-called experts on what was going on. So I kind of viewed it as a positive. I personally didn't call the Poison Center hardly ever. But from a medical legal point of view, it seems like, eh, what the heck? Good idea. What do you think? Well, I th- I think that no matter what they tell you, they are a consultant over the phone. They don't have the patient sitting in front of you. So if they say, ah, that's not really a problem, well, it's not a problem to them because they're not sitting there with the family and the patient. I found these people to be overly cautious, frankly. They they want to cover their butts. They don't want anybody to get a harm. And so if anything, they're going to be more aggressive with regards to recommendations than many times is needed. And I, you know, and I can certainly understand that, you know, we only have a few minutes left. I did have one other case that I wanted to do. I'm going to summarize it if I could, because we're not going to come back here on this, on this issue. Can I just summarize this case? 18 year old college freshman, uh, ongoing history of depression goes to the ER with a fever agitation and strange jerky movements seems disoriented at times, diagnosis is unknown, just like it was in this other case we talked about. It was admitted for hydration and observation, and they called the family doctor, and the doctor said, that's a good idea, do that. This is a teaching hospital. patient was evaluated by two residents, uh, an intern, right, eight months out of medical school, and another who had one additional year of training. The uh, Like the emergency department, these admitting interns were not really sure what the diagnosis was. One of them termed it a viral syndrome with hysterical symptoms. Yeah, right? Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, jeez, Lori. <laughs> Suggesting that the patient was overreacting to a relatively minor illness. They prescribed a shot of meperidine to control her shaking. The uh, family physician also approved that. At about 3 in the morning, one of the residents went off to care for some of the 40 other patients she was covering, 40 other patients. The other went to sleep in an adjacent building where he was, uh, would be available if necessary by beeper. After the doctors left, the patient became more agitated. The nurses contacted one of the residents at least twice who ordered physical restraints. She was also prescribed an injection of Haldol, Peridol, and another medication aimed at calming her down. Busy with other patients, the resident did not reevaluate the uh, the patient. The patient finally fell asleep, according to the nurses. But when a nurse's aide took her temperature at six thirty in the morning, it was one hundred and seven. The resident was called, and emergency medicine tried to lower the temperature. The patient suffered a cardiac arrest and died. Can you tell me the name of this patient, Greg? Yeah, this Rick has just summarized the sort of world famous Libby Zion case. The reason we all know it is Libby Zion's dad, Sidney Zion, was a columnist in New York. He this he this became a cause celeb for him for years. And it's this case that triggered holding back resident work hours to back to some sort of reasonable level. You know, there's a reason that they're called residents. This case was never presented to an attending when real decisions were being made. And so all the changes 
a lot of the changes that took place in 1995-1996 with regard to supervision of residents were the direct result of the Libby Zion case. In fact, he knew the, the prosecuting attorney for Manhattan, and he, uh, he tried to get this case, went to the grand jury to get this case as a murder case. Now, they refused to indict on murder, but they wrote a scathing report on the fact that there was, you know, basically children playing with this person, nobody of a senior level who was taking a look at him. And the Libby Zion case is one of the one of these sort of hallmark touchstone cases for emergency medicine. This doctor, this uh, father was absolutely infuriated about what what happened to his daughter. He was a columnist for the New York Daily News. And the issues were lack of supervision, lack of experience, way too many patients uh, under their care. There was a 30, one of the doctors had worked a 36 hour shifts. Here's a quote. You don't need kindergarten to know that a resident working a 36 hour shift is in no condition to make any kind of judgment call. Forget about life and death. And there are other Similar quotes, the, this made the New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsweek. It was on 60 Minutes. The, what was the outcome of the lawsuit? Uh, actually, Rick, they didn't get as much money as you might have expected. I think the lawsuit gave them like $375,000. But that wasn't what Zion was going after here. He wanted a change in work rules, in supervision rules for residents. And you know what? He was well-placed, he was powerful, he had the news media on his side, and he got exactly what he wanted. Now, it took them about 10 years after this or 12 years after this to get it, but he got what he wanted. And it's interesting how one squeaky wheel can make a lot of change. And the Libby Zion case had huge ramifications for for all types of training programs across the United States. Yes, uh, this was thought to be ultimately a serotonin syndrome case yes. as well. However, I think one of the reasons that the the award was so small three hundred seventy five thousand dollars is there are there are things about her case that are she presented with fever agitation and strange jerky movements these are characteristics of the disorder already before they gave her a shot of Haldol, but before they gave her a shot of mepiridine in the in the hospital so whether in fact they caused it maybe they made it worse but it was alleged without adequate information i guess that she had also taken other medicines they they specifically said cocaine but who knows the surroundings regarding her death are what really precipitated the changes. It's interesting. This case occurred in 1984. It was not until 2003 that the ACGME changed the uh, resident working hours. Yep. But, but, but this is a case which is one of those uh, sort of landmark cases in medical house officership here in the United States. You want to do some wines here, Ricky? Yeah, Greg, we got about uh, we got about uh, three or four minutes. Go to it, man. Yeah. Well, we're going back to um, Oregon. And uh, again, because I, I like the writing of Neil Martin, and I think he does a great job in reviewing. 
But keeping with our tradition here on Risk Management Monthly, no, we will drink no wine before it's time. I note it now here on my clock, and it's it's time to drink. But uh, we will not drink any wine before it's time. But here's one for you so you don't spend a lot of money. There's a smaller uh, vintner called Elk Cove, just like it sounds. The 2015 Pinot Blanc, it's uh, Willamette Valley, which is where about 80% of the wine in Oregon is, is grown. This is a great light white wine, not sweet, and it's uh, going for 19 bucks a bottle. You can't beat that. Now, in the same family from the same winery, they also do a Pinot Gris. To me, some of the Pinot Gris, it can be a little too sweet for my particular taste. But if you like that, it is, again, at 19 bucks a bottle, same vintner, worth, worth doing. I would, I would find out about that one. And there's uh, one other I'm going to make a comment on, and that's one called Evening Land Vineyards. Now, there's a reason I point this one out, and the reason is they get same area, same this, same that. You want to spend 70 bucks a bottle for a wine which is rated the exact same. I'm okay with you doing that, but the, uh, the, best, the best for your money is Elk Cove Pinot Blanc 2015. Hope everybody enjoys it. There you go. This is the August issue of Risk Management Monthly. Gregory, thanks very much. Anything further to say, or are we over and out? We're over and out, and hope all the uh, listeners enjoy it. Bye-bye.